Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. We'll be in 1 through 16 this morning, but I'll go ahead and read the preaching passage for you right up front. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace or courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray them, or excuse me, to betray him. Now in this text, particularly in verses 7 through 13, we're learning about the supreme and surpassing value of Christ above all else. More than that, the passage is teaching us that everything that has been granted to us has been given to us so that it can be poured out in honor of and in service to the Lord Jesus. The whole of our life is supposed to be verses 7 through 13 on a loop, just on repeat, where what he's given to us gets poured back out to him. Our wealth, our work, our will, they're all crowns given to us by God that we might cast them at the feet of Jesus who is alone worthy of them. Now, we often think of that scene as being an end-of-history phenomenon, but in reality, if you aren't living that way here and now, you're not going to be living that way when history ends. We start the practice of casting those things at the feet of Jesus right now. This text is teaching us how to live in a material world without becoming materialists. It's teaching us how to use valuable things in truly valuable ways by showing us where the real value lies. The scriptures don't call us to poverty, asceticism, or lack, but they do call us to steward all that we have for the glory and namesake of Christ, which may, in some instances, look wasteful to others. Let's consider these things with a walk through the text. I'll read verses 1 through 5 for you again. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now note that Jesus says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, 
and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But those who are going to see to his crucifixion say the opposite of what Jesus says, don't they? They say, not during the Passover. Jesus has just said, I'm going to be delivered up and crucified during the Passover feast. And those who are plotting against him say in verse 5, it can't happen during the Passover feast. And of course, Jesus is right, and it does in fact happen during the Passover festival. Matthew is careful to include this detail for us because he wants to make sure that despite his use of the phrase delivered up in verse 2, which sounds passive, doesn't it? Delivered up. Sounds like Jesus is being had and handled by other people as if he's out of control of what's going on. But Matthew makes sure to include this detail so that he does not portray Jesus as being actually passive. He's in full control, and he's calling his own shots. He says, here's when it's going to happen, despite the fact that the people who are planning it are trying to make sure that it doesn't happen that way and at that time. Jesus' death happens in accordance with his submission to his Father's will, not according to the will or schemes of men. Despite their scheming, they're actually unwitting and unwilling participants in God's plan, and their plans will not go forward as intended. But we, like those who are scheming, often fancy ourselves sovereign, don't we? We really do think that our plans, our charting of our own course, our shaping of our own destiny is actually a reality of some kind or another. But in fact, we're not the author even of our own story. We aren't the authors even of our own story. God is. We often arrogantly think that we're self-made, self-determined, and self-directed. But every thinking Christian should eschew this mentality because we understand that we have not shaped ourselves. Like we, we, haven't, we haven't even shaped ourselves in such a way as to be able to determine what our role in our story is going to be. You didn't determine your personality, did you? Did you knit yourself together in your mother's womb and say, I'd like this attribute and this attribute and this attribute because that's going to make me wildly successful? Did, did, did you do that? No. No, you didn't. You didn't determine your personality. You didn't determine your natural skill sets. You didn't determine what kind of household you'd grow up in. You didn't determine what epoch of time you'd be born in. You didn't determine what continent you'd be born on. You didn't determine what your cognitive capacity was going to be. You didn't determine which cultural forces were going to shape your internal sensibilities. You didn't determine if you'd have Down syndrome. You didn't determine any of those things. You didn't determine... If you'd be conceived to a black woman in New York City where there are more abor abortions every year than there are live births, you are in control of absolutely none of that. And yet frequently we have the audacity to think that we've done something. We've done nothing. God is the author of your story. You are not. That's what the entire book of Ecclesiastes that we studied in, I think it was 2021, was trying to teach us. Solomon was teaching us that our attempts to control outcomes in this life is tantamount to a man trying to catch the wind. You remember that memorable phrase? And here, in this passage, what we have are some wind chasers, thinking that the reason for the death of the Son of God is their plotting and planning. It's laughable, it's arrogant, and it's foolish. And so Matthew makes sure to show us who is really in control. So he has Jesus calling his own shot. 
in contradiction to those who are plotting against him. Jesus is not going to die because the Jewish elites are so crafty and cunning that they outplotted God with respect to his own son and figured out a way to kill him. That's decidedly not what's going on. Jesus is going to die when and because he said so, not when and because they said so. He's in control. They control nothing. Again, Matthew struck this balance in order to make sure that his continual use of the phrase delivered up wasn't misunderstood to mean not in command. You see, Matthew's actually going to use that phrase delivered up some 15 times to describe the events surrounding and leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But this is not to be understood as Jesus' submission to sinful men, but rather as his submission to his Father's plan to save sinful men. That's what's happening in the passage. Now let's look at verses 6 through 11. It says this, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, admittedly, this is confusing. (laughs) This section of the text is a little bit confusing, and here's why it's confusing. It's confusing because Jesus just got done with the great Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25 by saying that that we're going to be judged on the basis of how we treated the poor, right? You you remember that's how Matthew chapter 25 closed. I'll, I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answering them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness, but the righteous into eternal life. So he's just said he didn't care for the least of these, the poor in particular, being the being the idea. Then you'll be judged very harshly. So the disciples have the importance of the least of these, the importance of the poor, ringing in their ears as a primary point of judgment at the return of Christ. So when, after having just heard that teaching, they see this woman come in and pour out an entire flask of precious oil, which we're told in Mark was worth an entire year's wages, they're thinking, Mary, you done messed up. You messed up. And I'm saying Mary because John's account of this tells us that the woman who did this is Mary, the sister of Martha. That's who the woman is. So they're thinking... Judgment Day is going to be bad for you because Jesus just got done telling us that we're supposed to spend that excess on the poor, not pour it out on the floor. What are you doing? Did, you, did, we, did we fail to communicate that to you? And so you can see why they're indignant. You can see where the outrage is coming from. This is not, this is not simply 
that they failed to process or internalize Jesus' teaching. It actually was their attempt at internalizing Jesus' teaching and applying it to the situation that was in front of them. And as best they could tell, the best application was to scold the woman for having failed to care for the poor in the way that Jesus just said you were going to be judged for whether you did or did not do that. And so the disciples' protest actually makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Makes perfect sense. But Jesus rebukes them. And he tells them that she's exactly right in her stewardship. Hence the confusion that comes to us at the passage if we're reading it in context. It seems like their protest makes sense, and yet Jesus rebukes them. So what were the disciples' misunderstanding about Matthew chapter 25, particularly verses 31 to 46, when he told them that they'd better care for the poor, and in fact that they would be judged on the basis of whether or not they did. Well, Jesus tells them what they're missing. You see, they failed to process the fact that the poor were never the point. The poor were never the point. We covered this in the weekly email, so it'll be reviewed for some of you, but it's worthy of repetition anyway. As we've belabored, the context of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is a covenant context. It's God speaking to the household of Israel, who's in covenant with him. Jesus is talking to and about the covenant people of God, and that includes the poor people whom he references in the final judgment section of the chapter. He's talking about poor people within the household of faith. That's why Jesus says in chapter 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And in Matthew chapter 12, whom does Jesus identify as his brothers or his sisters or his mother? Quote, those who do the will of my father. So what Jesus taught in Matthew 25 was that his people are his body and that service to them is reckoned as service to him. That's the importance of the poor in the passage. It's the poor who make up Jesus' body who are in view. It's not the poor in general. It's the poor within the household of faith with whom Jesus has identified himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus isn't really saying that you're judged on the basis of how you treat the poor. He's really saying you're judged on the basis of how you treat him. But he has a body on earth called the church. And according to Jesus, how you treat his people is how you've treated him. That's what he's getting at. This is why in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, me. Me. So why do we serve the poor inside the household of faith? Because to serve them is to serve Christ, because he identifies that closely with his body. The target is not the poor themselves. The intended recipient is the head of the body of which those poor are a part. Now this is an imperfect analogy, as all analogies are, are approximations, but it's not unlike the gratitude that I feel when someone serves my wife or my children. You can probably picture that in your head. I count service rendered to a member of my family as service rendered to me because they're mine. Because they're mine. Their well-being is my top priority. So when someone works to promote their well-being, they have served me. You see? 
My good is bound up with theirs. Their pain's my pain. Their joy's my joy. They're mine. We're yoked together. So for you to serve Heather or one of my children is for you to have rendered service to me. That's how close our Lord is to us. So what does all of that have to do with the scene that we're considering Matthew 26? Well, it reveals the misunderstanding that the disciples had about Jesus' teaching on service to the poor. They protest the extravagance of Mary's offering to the Lord because they thought that it should have been used for the poor, as Jesus had just taught them in Matthew 25, but they missed the fact that the poor weren't the target in the teaching. The Lord Jesus himself was actually the target in the teaching. When Jesus goes into the final judgment scene and talks about service to the poor, he's following up on the parables that he told about his absence. You remember that? Those parables were about the absent master and what they were doing during the delay. And then the judgment is about the judgment that would occur for what they did during the absence. So service to the poor was simply a means by which they might serve Christ himself while he wasn't physically present with them. You see that? During the time while Christ is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, we serve him by serving his body, the church. But where is Jesus in Matthew 26? He's right there, physically, bodily, present in the room. You understand the significance of that. This means that the extravagant act of service didn't require a medium or a middleman in order to ensure delivery to the intended recipient because he was right there directly to receive it. You see... That's why he says, the poor you'll always have with you, but the opportunity to serve me like this, here and now, has a shelf life. And Mary has taken full advantage. Just as Mary had chosen the good thing when she chose to sit at the feet of Jesus as Martha stressed out about the meal, so here she has chosen wisely and done the beautiful thing of lavishly pouring out service on our Lord while she had the opportunity to do so as he's there with her physically in the room. Something else going on here is Mary's acknowledgement of Jesus' true identity. It's one of the other strands running through the passage. She's pouring this expensive oil over Jesus' head. Now, what's that act typically called in Scripture? It's called anointing, isn't it? When you pour a special, costly, perfumed oil over someone or something, the Bible has a word for it, and it's anointing. Now, biblical theologians note that the first and archetypal anointing is actually in Genesis chapter 2, when God anoints Adam with the breath of life and commissions him for service in the garden temple as the first priest. Now, I don't have time to support all of that right here, but I do know that we have discussed the fact that what God's doing in Genesis is he's making the first temple. It's the first high place. It's on the mountain, and it's the place where God meets with man. I know we've covered at least that much ground, and so when we think about the Garden of Eden, we should be thinking about the temple. But before Adam is given a priestly function and discharges any of that duty, he's first the recipient of an, of an anointing directly from God himself. And every other anointing in the Bible traces back to that first one. So anointing is connected to temple. 
And the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and man interact. That's why in Genesis 28, verse 18, Jacob anoints the stone that he slept on when he had the dream about the ladder that connected heaven and earth. What did he do when he woke up? He anoints the stone. Why? Because anointing is connected to temple where heaven meets earth. That's why in Exodus chapter 40, the Israelites anoint the tabernacle, the place where heaven touched down to earth. Those places get anointed. That's why priests and kings were anointed, because they were heaven's agents on earth, connecting people with God. That's what anointing is connected to, wrapped up in, and associated with in Scripture. So when you think anointing, think of bridging heaven and earth. Because that's what anointed things and anointed people do. They connect heaven to earth, people to God. That's what anointing is, biblically speaking. Now with that theology of anointing in place, this lavish anointing scene makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense that for Jesus, it's the whole jar. It's the whole bottle. You see, a, a lot of anointings were, were not nearly so messy or lavish. It's, it's a drop. It's a drop on the head. Now, there are some instances in Scripture where you've got a, a more lavish anointing, but again, it's atypical for it to be, here's the whole jar. Usually it's some drops. In fact, one of the ways that the Hebrew word can be translated is smear. Often it's going to be, here it is, on your forehead. But because she knows what anointing means, connecting heaven and earth, and because she knows that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, which means what? Anointed one. She knows that this is the ultimate connection point for heaven and earth. He gets the whole jar. He gets the whole jar. It's not a drop or two. It's everything. Because he's not an anointed one. He's the anointed one. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is, as he says in John's gospel, the door. He is the connection point between God and man as he is the God-man. Now to be clear, Jesus' anointing, technically speaking, was at his baptism when the Spirit descends on him. But here, Mary's act is one that's done in recognition of God's anointing. So, just to be clear, I'm not arguing that she had the authority to anoint Jesus, right? What I'm saying is that she's recognizing him as the supremely anointed one. And this act is an act of reverence and awe in recognition of that fact. But Jesus gets even more specific in verse 12 when he says this, In pouring this anointing oil on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now, it was typical to anoint a body for burial, but not a living one. That's a bit of an oddity. You would perfume a corpse, not a living person. So why does Jesus count this act as a preparation for his burial? Well, I think it's because his anointing is an anointing unto death. Because it is through his death that he achieves the purpose of anointing. You remember what anointing means. What does anointing mean? It means that someone or something is going to be used of God to connect heaven and earth. And how is Jesus going to connect heaven and earth? How's he going to do it? He's going to do it by dying. 
So this anointing scene is not at all unrelated to his death because his is an anointed death, a messianic death, a triumphant death that serves God's purposes to redeem his people and bring us into his heavenly kingdom that God might dwell with man. In verse 13, Jesus says that wherever the gospel goes, this woman's story will go also. And so it has. Wherever the church has been established, the Bible translated, and the gospel proclaimed, this woman's story has been told, hasn't it? The Bible's been translated into 736 languages. And whenever one of the gospel accounts is read, this woman's act of service has been remembered. Our consideration of it this morning is evidence of Jesus' accuracy. So Jesus is quick to honor Mary because she's unreserved in honoring him. She lowers herself before him, so he exalts her before us. Jesus ensures this woman's place in history to memorialize her because she was diligent to remember him. How hard do men work to be remembered? And most of us will not be. How how diligently do we work to leave a legacy and be remembered and do important stuff? The speeches of parliamentary orators, the exploits of warriors, the works of poets and painters all pale in comparison to this simple sacrifice poured out in exaltation of our Lord. Those things that are done for Christ are those things that will survive in everlasting remembrance. Well, many of the accomplishments that we actually fancy impressive will be written as if in sand, forgotten and spoken of no more. But the Lord says the least cup of cold water given in his name to his people is the work that endures. The eye of he who sat in Simon's house that evening is upon you and it is upon me. So, as the Apostle Paul says, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not written in sand. It is not burned up in the fire. It is that which remains. We'll close with verses 14 through 16 and the stark contrast that they create with the scene that we've just been discussing. It says this, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see the juxtaposition, don't you? You see the contrast. Mary values Jesus to the tune of her most expensive possession. Judas values him so little that 30 pieces of silver will do. That's the price that you command or that you were commanded to pay to make restitution for someone's bull in the Old Testament. In Judas' mind, that's that's all it'll take to get him to betray his Lord and Master. He doesn't even barter for more. 30 it is. Okay. Yeah, that sounds fine. As I said at the outset, this text teaches us how to use valuable things in truly valuable ways. So let's 
let's live our lives in such a way that what we have, what we've earned, what we've built, and what we're building is poured out in service to Christ, which in this epoch of time translates into service of his body, his people, the precious ones for whom he died. To serve them, that is, to serve each other, is to serve Christ himself. So may we show our love for him by our love for each other, and he will be well pleased. Let's pray.